This is Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mayor Culpa Podcast. We begin tonight with a State of the Union address for the books, when last night President Biden achieved what Kevin McCarthy could never do, which was uniting the room and getting Republicans to jump from their seats in support of Medicare and Social Security. Yes, that happened. It was a masterclass, really, on out-negotiating Republicans, pulled off by Biden, who sparred with a raucous crowd of MAGA hecklers. If you're wondering about President Joseph R. Biden's fitness, I'll tell you. He was ducking and weaving like a champ on Tuesday when he delivered his best speech to date, the State of the Union Address. And to you, my fellow Americans, you know, uh, I start tonight by congratulating the 118th Congress and the new Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy. Speaker, I don't want to ruin your reputation, but I look forward to working with you. (laughs) The president totally owned the moment. He started by congratulating Kevin McCarthy in what appeared to be a genuine moment of respect. Kevin smiled like a rookie who had just been recognized by an old pro. The cheers were heard throughout the gallery and from both sides of the aisle. It was a beautiful way to start. As we gather here tonight, we're writing the next chapter in the great American story, said the president. He said, we proved the cynics and naysayers wrong and congratulated Republicans for working with him to get major legislation done in his first two years. Throughout, Biden seemed to be asking, are Republicans going to be a part of the problem or a part of the solution as we go forward? As the speech progressed, the answer became crystal clear. We're facing the test of our time. We have to be the nation we've always been at our best. Optimistic, hopeful, forward-looking. A nation that embraces light over dark, hope over fear, unity over danger, stability over chaos. We have to see each other not as enemies, but as fellow Americans. We're good people. The only nation in the world built on an idea. The only one. Though McCarthy had warned the Republican House members before the speech that America was watching, so please shut the fuck up and not act like a bunch of punks around the president. Certain classless idiots just couldn't resist the opportunity to remind us that fucking MAGA is still alive. Not at all well, but sickingly vocal. When Marjorie Taylor Greene and the other shouters called the president a liar for saying some Republicans want to end Social Security and Medicare and others want to cut them. President Biden pulled the entire Republican Party in the House of Representatives into a public agreement that they will not dare to touch Social Security. As we all apparently agree, Social Security and Medicare is off the, off the books now, right? They're not to be stopped. All right. We got unanimity. Social Security and Medicare are a lifeline for millions of seniors. Americans have to pay into them from the very first paycheck they started. So tonight, let's all agree, and we apparently are, let's stand up for seniors.
and show them. We'll not cut Social Security. We will not cut Medicare. Even Kevin McCarthy himself, by the end of that, was forced to stand and add his applause on the video record forever that they will not touch Social Security. Biden's second State of the Union couldn't be summed up in one line. Let's finish the job. Indeed, the line could and should be used as a campaign slogan. But the address was punctuated by outbursts, by jeers and peals of mocking laughter. But Biden didn't care. He turned the tables on his Republican opponents and argued in real time with the insurgents. And if this was the start of his re-election campaign, well, he's off to a ruckus start. Some Republicans want Medicare and Social Security to sunset. I'm not saying it's a majority. That means Congress doesn't vote. Well, I'm glad to see you. No, I tell you, I, I enjoy conversion. You know, it means if, if Congress doesn't keep the programs the way they are, they'd go away. Other Republicans say, I'm not saying it's a majority of you. I don't even think it's even a significant. But it's being proposed by individuals. I'm not politely not naming them, but it's being proposed by some of you. Folks, the idea is that we're not going to be we're, we're not going to be moved into being threatened to default on the debt if we don't respond. Folks, so folks, as we all apparently agree. Social Security and Medicare is off the, off the books now, right? They're not to be spot. All right. We got unanimity. When the Republicans shouted back that no, they were not threatening Social Security, Biden just smiled, appearing to relish the moment and ad-lib that he was pleased they all agreed. And I quote, I'm glad to see, no, I tell you, I enjoy conversion. His reply to the confederacy of dunces led by Marjorie Taylor Greene was meant as an unsubtle reminder that he spent 36 years as a senator and no one has gotten more done with Republicans than he has. So, he is not about to back down to a bunch of self-righteous MAGA asshats anytime soon. As the day that these words entered the congressional record for the very first time in the 234-year history of the Congress of the United States. Pussy-ass bitch. McCarthy actually looked like he was going to be sick when his side piece, Marjorie Taylor Greene, started screaming from her seat. When the camera cut to the Gorgon from Georgia, the two men on either side of her looked like they wished that they had sat somewhere else, but anywhere except next to her. And at the moment, it became abundantly clear that McCarthy has no control over his party. He's just herding a pack of feral cats. He shouldn't have been there. He's a sick puppy. Uh, he, he shouldn't be, he shouldn't be there. Afterwards, Romney told reporters he took exception to Santos standing right in the aisle. 
greeting everyone like he was the prom king. And given the fact that he's under ethics investigation, he should be sitting in the back row and staying quiet. Generally, the response to Biden's speech was favorable. Even upbeat. Sassy Mitt Romney turned to cameras on his way out of the address and actually called George Santos a, quote, sick puppy. And reportedly, he told Santos to his face that, and I quote, he doesn't belong in Congress. Well, no shit, Sherlock. There were some tense moments at last night's State of the Union address. Cameras captured a heated exchange between embattled Congressman George Santos and Senator Mitt Romney. One lip reader posted this account of how the exchange went down. You ought to be embarrassed. Yeah, sure. You ought to be embarrassed. I'm well, well, okay. be embarrassed. You ought to be embarrassed, son. Sure, you got man. me? That's your opinion. the record tonight and say that I am sexually attracted to Mitt Romney. <laughs> it's not the first time and it won't be the last time. I don't even care that he's a Republican or a Mormon. In fact, since he's a Mormon, he'll be open to another wife and if not, he's a Republican, so he'll be open to having an affair. <laughs> Problem solved. Sarah Huckabee Sanders and the Republican rebuttal to Biden's speech went down like the fucking Titanic. She hit an iceberg early on and proceeded to sink to the bottom and real quickly. She said, and I quote, the dividing line in America is no longer between right or left. The choice is between normal or crazy. And for once, she's absolutely right. Last night's speech was supposed to be a Republican response. And we're told over and over again by the news media that Republican leaders want to move on from the era of Trump. But last night they picked as the person to respond, the Trump era spokesperson. And predictably, what is it that she talked about? She talked about Donald Trump, making clear that Trump and the MAGA extremists control the Republican Party, lock, stock, and barrel. First of all, she was only talking to an audience of one. And that one is a fucking asshole himself and it's Donald J. Trump. And according to polls, she made absolutely no headway with average Republican voters. Her speech sounded straight up MAGA nuts in a way that I think most Republicans would like to forget. All that fire and brimstone bullshit may be popular in Arkansas, but the other 49 states and Puerto Rico agree with me. She just seemed bonkers, especially after listening to the president's clear, logical approach to fixing our nation's problems. He's the first man to surrender his presidency to a woke mob that can't even tell you what a woman is. Whether Joe Biden believes this madness or is simply too weak to resist it, his administration has been completely hijacked by the radical left. Huckabee offered zero policy points and her vitriol against the woke mob and liberals were like stale leftovers compared to Biden's renewed commitment to all Americans, not just the ones who voted for him. Poor Sarah, like so many of Trump's acolytes, is going down with the ship and honestly, good fucking riddance. It was an obscenity. What the American people saw was a gaslighter, a manipulator, and a liar, lying to them for the umpteenth thousandth time. It wasn't fresh, it was stale, it was old, it was an ugly speech, 
from a lying governor who is unfit for any type of public service. Post-speech Wednesday, Biden started his victory lap in Wisconsin, where he spoke confidently to union workers. The president cemented his message to voters, let's work together to make this country better. Backing the president, his best people, including Kamala Harris, Mayor Pete, and Janet Yellen, went to important swing states to reinforce the president's commitment to kitchen table issues that most affect the middle class. And like I said, it sure looks like Biden is making his case to run again in 2024. The question now is, can we convince all Democrats that the 80-year-old is up to the task of not just running, but winning? Officials say that more than 100 aftershocks have rocked the area, including one that was nearly as strong as the original earthquake, just as massive. And look at those buildings just collapsing into dust before our eyes. Uh, CNN international anchor Becky Anderson, she is in Gaziantep, Turkey. Uh, we spoke to you earlier. You were outside a building where they were trying, hoping to make a rescue there. D to describe what you're seeing this morning. Yeah, Jim, it's, it's heartbreaking. Um, it sounds as if they may just about to be called to call for quiet once again. Uh, this building behind me has completely collapsed and as uh, the search and rescue teams here understand it, they believe that there are uh, more than 15 people uh, still in the rubble beneath this building. The official death toll at the time of this report is over 17,000 and rising by the minute in what is now being called Turkey and Syria's deadliest earthquake in decades. Since the 7.8 earthquake, Turkey's President Erdogan is dismissing critics who say that he hasn't done anything to help the victims. Rescue efforts have been slow to non-existent. So where's the heavy machinery, Erdogan, and the rescue teams? You know where? It's fucking nowhere. Most of the work has been left to volunteers who say that as they walk the streets that they actually hear the screams of people still alive and buried underground in all the rubble. I mean, people are literally trying to dig victims out of the rubble with their bare hands. Look, for a very long time, Syrians have felt that their plight has been forgotten uh, by the world. I think this only compounds that fear, that isolation. There's really no more, I can't even imagine, a more vulnerable population being struck by yet, by yet another catastrophe when they have so little left to even handle it. Erdogan has been in power for 20 years now. His economy fucking sucks. He's still fighting with the Kurds. I mean, basically, he's running Turkey as any dictator does. And the answer is, Badly. Syria is still at war, though everything in that part of the world has stopped. Everything but the effort to save the victims. The United Nations and agencies from around the world are all rushing to the site of this terrible disaster with humanitarian aid. And all I can say is Godspeed to the victims and to those not affected. Count your blessings. Okay, I'll tell you quick. On Wednesday, I spoke with the Manhattan District Attorney's Office, Alvin Bragg, for the 15th time regarding a certain payment that I made to Stormy Daniels on behalf of Individual One. And if you don't know who Individual One is, get off the show, that's for sure. But it was the first time since a grand jury has been formed to investigate my former boss. People get married before going on 15 dates. Why 15 visits? Well, that I don't, let's not forget, 13 were with the former 
District Attorney Cyrus Vance. Three of those 13 were while I was incarcerated at Otisville. So it's technically 10. Now it's two. And I will be returning to the district attorney's office when I'm not going to tell you. But at the end of the day, it to me, it's an indication and a clear indication just how serious that Alvin Bragg is taking this investigation. So as I said to the media, I think that the Manhattan district attorney is ready to do what needs to be done. I'm not going to go into details here, but suffice it to say, I am keeping my promise to the American people to see this thing through to the very end. I took the fall for a pathological liar. I did my time, but the crime didn't go away. I mean, far from it. There's been numerous books written on the subject, my own included, Revenge. But last week, Mark Pomerantz's book, People vs. Donald Trump, it dropped claiming that his case against individual one, and I'm going to say it again, aka Donald J. Trump, wasn't perfect, but it was ready to go. Now at the time, Bragg didn't agree and said as much at a press conference on Tuesday. And he quotes, I bring hard cases when they are ready. Well, it appears that Alvin Bragg may finally be ready. And stay tuned, folks, because it may be coming sooner than you think. And now for the main event. I welcome back our next guest, Tristan Snell, the former New York Assistant Attorney General, famously led the civil prosecution against Trump University for the state of New York against the Trump Organization. The 2013 case found the Trump Organization guilty, forcing them to pay out a whopping $25 million in restitution. Snell spent years scaling the walls of the Trump Organization, largely creating the playbook for defeating Donald Trump in court. And ultimately, he said, it's about the receipts, not the witnesses. To beat Trump, you need indisputable proof, a smoking gun, and that only comes from having the documents to prove it. Nowadays, Snell is the founder of Main Street Law and appears as a commentator on CNN. He also serves as a contributing writer for the Washington Post, The New Yorker, The Atlantic, and Last Week Tonight with John Oliver. I mean, that's just to name a few. He joins me today as my own case, the one where I'm a witness involving Trump, heats up again in Manhattan. So let's go now to that conversation. Okay, so Tristan, your TikTok and YouTube videos are very effective. You take on a bunch of different topics and issues, and then you back them up with humor, and more importantly, something that's desperately needed, facts. But what's your current favorite topic, and what do you really like to report on? Oh, that's a great question. I mean, I think my current favorite topic, I think that is true for a lot of people too, has been the, uh, the ongoing saga of George Santos. Um, just because <laughs> it has provided some comic relief Although at the same time, what's happening there is deadly serious because we're talking about a member of the United States Congress that we don't even know who he is. Uh, he's going to be potentially getting access to sensitive government information. It's really problematic. Uh, but look, I mean, I think that really you can tell by how I'm talking about this and by the other things that I like to talk about online, you know, what really, uh, what really gets me going is to be able to talk about uh, the fight against fraud and corruption and encroaching fascism 
uh, and the fight for democracy and for justice and for accountability. And wherever that fight is, that's usually a place I like to be. Well, look, so obviously you like to fight. You're a lawyer, right? As well as you have uh, now as the founder of Main Street Law. Tell me about Main Street Law, because your background is you were part of the New York Attorney General's office, and I believe that was under Schneiderman, and you were actually part of the entire case that ultimately convicted and shut down Trump University. I I think George Santos, by the way, since we're talking about George Santos, I'm almost 100% certain that he graduated valedictorian. (laughs) So that's right. right. Ask him. He will, t- he will tell, tell you. you. He'll be the first um, to tell you. Tell us. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. T- tell me about that. Uh, so with, uh, with the Trump University case, uh, you know, I was an assistant attorney general in the Consumer Pro- Frauds and Protection Bureau uh, during the years when we were getting that investigation going. And then uh, I was the lead attorney bringing the, uh, the litigation against it was a civil prosecution of Trump University that we brought in August of 2013. Then we had a bunch of, uh, we had to fight off a motion to dismiss and do some other things. Uh, but building that up, building up that investigation, I talked to probably about 120 different former students of Trump University, uh, almost all of whom, uh, you know, told me in painstaking detail about how they had been ripped off uh, and fooled. Uh, by everything there. But that was uh, a big part of my work when I was there uh, at the office for a few years. But this was back from 2011 to 2014. Uh, And then I actually worked in the tech world for six years. And then starting in like 2020, really 2021, this was about two years ago, uh, founded Main Street Law, uh, Main Street dot law, that is the name of the firm. And, uh, you know, the goal is to be the best firm in the country for small to mid-sized businesses. Uh, So we represent a lot of tech startups, but a lot of companies that wouldn't necessarily think of themselves as startups. They're just founder-run or family-run businesses uh, that are private. They're not uh, big public companies. We don't really rep Fortune 500s. It goes to the name Main Street. We're trying to be high, high quality legal for uh, what's really the bulk of the economy is small to mid-sized businesses. And it's, it's also the bulk of where job growth usually comes from. Uh, and the goal is to, to serve that sector with the type of lawyers who normally would work for Fortune 500 companies, people like me who used to work for those kind of companies, represent those kind of companies um, at large law firms, but be able to do it at, uh, you know, at, at, at prices that are basically a lot more reasonable for uh, individual entrepreneurs to afford. So that's been extremely gratifying. Uh, you know, that's my that's my day job. Uh, the fighting for democracy hmm, right. is uh, is the thing that I do for fun. It's like being a Cape Crusader. Yeah. You know, we kind of talk about that a lot here on Maya Culp. I have another podcast that I started uh, with Ben Micellis called Political Beatdown. Mm-hmm. I mean, we call ourselves, and it's not just my. It's not just the two of us. It's People like yourself, people like um, Jack Cocciarella, who we just had on, people like David Hogg, mm-hmm. or everybody at the Lincoln Project, Tara and Rick and Reed, everybody. We call ourselves almost like you know, Cape Crusaders who are trying to fight for democracy. And yet, 
when I speak to friends, when I speak to just people on the street who come over and they, some of them are big fans of all of ours and they thank, you know, they thank each and every one of us for everything that we're doing in order to help to preserve democracy. Mm-hmm. But then, of course, you come across these others and they just are lost in the weeds. They are still so set in their mind that Donald needs to come back, that America would be better off if Donald came back. I scratched my head the other day with one guy, and he's a friend of mine. And I turned around and I said to him, I truly don't understand you. I really don't. I understand that he might be good for your business. He's a hedge fund guy. He might be good for your business, but he's bad for democracy. He's bad for your daughter. He's bad for your wife. He's bad for your nieces. Um, He's just bad for women. He's bad for minorities. And yet his comment was, yeah, but look how well the economy was doing. And I tried to explain to him based upon the numbers. Right. And this is a guy who's in that world scratching my head and saying, come on, man the fuck are you babbling about you realize you could be the richest guy in the entire world if trump becomes president he'll pull a muhammad ben salman he'll just go in and say you know what this is how much from your account i want and if you don't give it to me we lock you up because he's not somebody that believes he doesn't believe in the constitution he doesn't believe in democracy he doesn't believe in capitalism either really the the kind of capitalism that he wants to practice and we saw this when he was president it's it, it's it's the same kind of capitalism that we see in Russia, which is not really capitalism either. It's mm-hmm. this crony capitalism where it's really ruled by oligarchs. The entire Trump administration was was ultimately run. All the department heads were all big donors to his campaign. Most of them then had particular business interests in disassembling and dismantling the very agencies that they were put in place to t- supposedly run. So, you know, that's... That's the kind of uh, it's not really capitalism because it's not built on competition. It's not built on uh, actually having like a free competition among multiple different companies. It's it's basically built on having kind of monopolistic interests that glom on to what's left of the uh, of the government uh, or finally having the government be big as long as it's uh, lining their pockets. You know, that's the those are the kind of people who end up being winners in Donald Trump's economy. Uh, and it, you know, the economy was, you know, what it was there, but he was basically, first of all, you know, Trump inherited the economy of the mid 20 teens that was, that was already doing so well under Obama. Uh, and the economy had gone in the tank by the time Trump had left. And it's actually been one of the best job growth performances, if not the very best job growth performance, uh, in terms of, uh, jobs per month that we've ever seen in, in, uh, you know, in, since these numbers were being kept under Joe Biden, Joe Biden's been averaging, you know, three to five hundred thousand jobs per month. Uh, and it's the best job growth performance of any president on record. Uh, and uh, and the stock market has been doing perfectly fine as well. It's not been doing as great as some people would hope. I guess this guy's not happy. But uh, but if you're no, if, yeah. but it's. No, but it's interesting because you bring up job growth. We talked about that, as I said to him. What is it? And he does not like Biden at all, at all. He's as anti-Biden as anybody I've ever met. And I, I asked him, why don't you name one time that Trump acknowledged that he made a mistake? But I, and I love when, you know, Trump comes on television. And he says, 
I would have blown that thing right out of the fucking sky on day number one. Well, and then we find out that there might have been several occasions, three, three occasions, three. in fact, where, right, where there were and nothing and not only nothing, but even people like John Bolton this morning was on television talking about how he didn't even know that he wasn't even brought up to speed on it, which he thinks, of course, is disgraceful, though I think John Bolton is a disgrace and a joke in and of himself. But my friend, again, the analyst, turns around and says to me, the job growth is actually not good for the economy, that he thinks that the job growth is going to throw us into a recession because I don't really know the answer why. He just said it's going to throw us into a recession and it's not going to help to stop inflation. Yeah, look, there's a there's a whole problem here where we have a lot of uh, a lot of folks in the business world who really only think the economy is doing well when their piece of it is doing well. And to see more people get jobs and maybe higher wages, they somehow think that's a terrible thing. So but let's just put that aside for a second. You come back to more of a fundamental problem for somebody for somebody like your friend, which is that if there isn't a rule of law, then no property is safe. And that's really what you were getting at right uh, just a minute ago with the with the point about Mm -hmm. Ben Salman is that the kicker is that if you don't have somebody who actually respects the rule of law, that it does not matter how wealthy you are, it could get taken away. If you just piss off the wrong part of the ruling elite, the ruling cabal, that is how Russia works. If you get on the wrong side of Vladimir Putin, it doesn't matter if you're a billionaire oligarch, he'll take it away from you. He'll either completely dispossess you of your assets, he'll shift it over to somebody else, or you just might find yourself falling out a window or happening to get in a really terrible car accident right near the Kremlin. Like that's what that's what happens to people in corrupt regimes that don't have a rule of law that don't actually have a rule by 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 actually having court cases and judges and everything the underpinnings of private property are having a functioning court and legal system and all of that goes out the window when you talk about somebody who wants to be a dictator fundamentally what january 6th is about uh and and why it's so important that it get prosecuted fully is that it's no less than the question of Will we be a government of of laws and processes and due process and the Constitution? Or will we be a government where it's all about what the leader ate for breakfast that morning and what kind of mood he's in? Uh, and, and where you actually have uh, that kind of dictatorship uh, of, of any kind like that. It doesn't have it can still be an elected dictator. But if you have if you have a system where the dictator is above, where the president is above the law. You don't have a president anymore. You have a dictator, no matter what they're called. And that's really what's at stake there. So your hedge fund guy may be doing great today, but then if he doesn't give enough to Trump's next campaign and Trump actually gets back into the White House, he pisses off Trump. He happens to be overheard saying something negative about Trump at a party. All of a sudden, that guy can be, be gone. His wealth can be taken away from him. That's the kind it's of exactly that's the like kind the way of, it was with Stalin, that's the right? Kind of society that we are on the razor's edge of becoming. So it does not matter that these people are winners today. Everybody is a loser if we don't have a rule of law. Capitalism goes out the window at that point. At that point, your wealth, your status, your freedom are entirely based on one guy's win. And that's what we're up against right now. Yeah. You know, just to give my friend a um a fair shake, the way that he was explaining that, and I'm sure 
a lot of my listeners right now are saying to them, so wait, wait, how could uh, job growth be bad for inflation? And there are many economists out there that say that since wages and salaries are a major input cost for companies, that rising wages should or could lead to higher prices for products and services in an economy, which ultimately push the overall inflation rate higher. And that's the point he was trying to get at, that, you know, this um, now 3% unemployment in America, lowest since 1969, may not be the way that MSNBC, CNN, or as he likes to call it, the left, um, wants to translate it to mean. No, look, there's definitely, and that's what, the thing is that this is not a new fact. This is exactly why the Fed has been raising interest rates, right? I'm not an economist, but the the whole point of them raising interest rates is to actually like balance out the economy more so that it doesn't get overheated and cause too much inflation. And then the entire question right now is, look, a lot of people were worried that we were already going to be going back into too much unemployment because of some high profile layoffs at, cer- at certain companies, that does not seem to be the case yet. And look, what they're trying to do is to see if they can actually balance it out and get what they refer to as a soft landing. It's difficult to do. You know, it's like, uh, it's like, it's like, fly- it's like flying an airplane from a hundred years ago. Like, are you going to get a soft landing? It depends on who the pilot is. Like it, they don't have the, they didn't have the instruments and, and, and technology that we've got today, but like, it's tough landing an economy, so to speak, but we'll, we'll see if we, we are able to pull it off. But I don't think the answer is to go back to a guy uh, whose idea of capitalism was how much did you donate to my last campaign? That doesn't do anybody. Right, any I, agree. Yeah, I agree with you. Now, you also recently claimed that Florida is going after women's menstrual cycle data. Which, in my opinion, I mean, it's, it's fucked up. It's, I mean, it's, it's really some disgusting peeping Tom type shit, if you think about it. You also said in that video that if you care about your privacy, don't communicate online. Is that true about all our online communications? And what's happened to our privacy rights? So the kicker is the privacy is really only as good as the platform on which you share the information. Right. So if you're talking about Facebook, Facebook stores all of this stuff and then they will sell it to third parties. They will use it for their own marketing purposes. They will give it to the government if there's a warrant or a subpoena. Uh, You know, when people talk about encrypted information, uh, even that isn't perfect because it all comes down to, well, who were you talking to? And by the way, this comes. This actually is going to be a major factor in what we learn as we start to find out more about all the investigations into January 6th, because a lot of the communications that were happening there were being done on these in, on these encrypted uh, messaging apps like Signal or Telegram. But the kicker is they would do it in a big group. That's very common to have like a Signal group with like 20 people in it, 40 people in it, a Telegram group with 100 people in it. All then t- so that when it's end to end encrypted, all of the data lives. It doesn't live on the network. It only lives on the devices that we're communicating with each other. Well, but what that means though is that any one person in that group, if they hand their phone over to the government, the government now has all of the texts that mm-hmm. are shared with that group. So that's a big problem right. for people like a Roger Stone, for example, or a Mark Meadows, 
where they were actually in these groups uh, in the run up to January 6th and on the day of and, and after, uh, because all it takes is one person to flip and all of that stuff can be discoverable. When we talk about the situation with, um, with, with women's health and reproductive rights, the kicker there is that we are in a, a perilous moment uh, and we're going to be there for a while. And my advice to anybody would be don't share that information online. You don't need to be using a tracker app to keep track of the cycle, um, you know, just pen and paper. I would not make that stuff digital. Uh, you know, there was a case out in Nebraska where a mother and daughter were writing each other on Facebook uh, and those communications got used to uh, convict them uh, of violating Nebraska's new uh, stringent reproductive rights laws. So this is the world that we're now going to inhabit. And I think it's very important that people realize that for this extremely personal information that can be the source of now criminal convictions, uh, that the Internet is no place for any of that. All, all of that is something that then can be used by a, a red state DA that wants to throw the book at some girl for having an abortion. Hey, I mean, you can't make you can't make this shit up. Yeah. To follow up on that last question, lots of states are doing some pretty weird stuff. I mean, I'm sure you see it online. And to be very honest with you, I don't know how true some of them are, but lots of states are doing really weird shit to try and confine pregnant women and to keep them from getting an abortion, from leaving the state to go to a state that abortion is legal. They've criminalized abortion in some states, and now we hear that Pregnant women will be tracked if they cross state mm -hmm. lines. So my question to you is, how can they legally get away with prosecuting a woman if she travels out of state for an abortion, especially if abortion is legal in that state? Yeah, I don't think that is going to be upheld. I think that when that gets challenged in court, it's going to be struck down because a state cannot impinge on interstate commerce and the, a state cannot try to reach over state lines to try to regulate what would be happening in a different state. So I don't think that those, uh, I don't think that those laws and those prosecutorial efforts in, in certain states will be upheld. Now, the problem in these cases often is that the, it may be that the law is ultimately struck down by the courts, but that's not necessarily going to help that particular woman, that particular woman one you know is in need of an abortion right then right and, and and it could take you know she doesn't have months or a year or whatever she, her rights are going to get affected right then and there and if her rights later get vindicated by a court decision a year later but she was forced to carry a child that that uh that, that you know against her wishes uh then horrible harm is is being done to women by forcing them to give birth and in a lot of instances, a lot of these abortions that people are seeking are for medical reasons, and you're actually placing these women at risk of, of dying uh, if there are complications with a miscarriage. Uh, if there's what's called an ectopic pregnancy, where there's a, uh, a mm -hmm. uh, um, where you actually have the pregnancy inside one of the fallopian tubes, it's not viable, and if it's not actually uh, if it's not actually taken care of by an abortion, um, the woman. Uh, can very likely die. There's a lot of situations like that where we're going to have 
horrible, horrible, horrible travesties of, 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 of injustice here uh, in the months and years to come. And, you know, and the courts being able to come in and fix these things, uh, a, you know, months or a year later, it's it's not going to help some of these women. There are going to be women whose rights are going to be violated and there are going to be women who are going to die. That's what's going to come. Yeah. And what really baffles me, to be very honest, I mean, I was reading an article and I'm trying to find it. The article was how the government right now, how certain sectors of the government this is under the Trump administration. We're trying to train dogs who are capable of smelling or um, detecting a woman's menstrual cycle oh based upon odor. You can't make this shit up. I mean, this is crazy, but it's actually more than just dogs. I understand cats as well, but they were going to use dogs. Um, they're able to detect hormonal changes and so on um, ba- based on by, you know, odor as well as by hormonal levels. And so what this article presupposed is, can you imagine that a woman who is living in a state that this is, I mean, this is like sci-fi crazy shit that you wouldn't believe if in fact it wasn't so possible of being true. Let's say she can't afford a plane ticket, but she's right. going to take the train to the next state. Right. All right. Now she's at the train station and you have, we'll call them Gilead police mm-hmm. walking around with dogs, whatever type of dog that it might be. And all of a sudden the dog darts towards this, to this woman. Yeah. And now she's sitting there. And now she's exposed. And so the Gilead officer asks her her name, her address. I want to see some ID. Now, you ask the question, why? Well, under those rules, clearly they don't have to have probable cause for, you know, or any articulable suspicion of a crime that was done. They can say the crime is, you know, you're pregnant. We want to make sure that you come back with the fetus. Right. And now they put your name onto a, a registry. This I know it sounds crazy, but this is possible. And that's what really scared the shit out of me. The fact that government feels that they have the right to intrude. Forgetting about what I find, again, just despicable behavior. They have the right to intrude into your private life, into a woman's decision, into your bedroom. Now they can violate you while you're walking on the street using an animal or some other type of form. And if you come back hypothetically and you are not pregnant, maybe then they end up criminally charging you. Right. I mean, I know it sounds crazy, and I'm sure that my listeners are scratching their head and saying, is this shit even possible? And I, and I, you know, and I say, yeah, it's possible. It's possible when you have somebody who's really just a weak-minded loser like Donald, who is so, um, he's so stuck into an ideology, not because he believes it himself, but because they're supporters and right. because that group helped to effectuate his return back to the White House. Right. Well, that's the thing. I mean, it, it, is this stuff possible? Yeah, it is. It, it, uh, the sad, sad, scary, scary truth is that it's absolutely 100% possible. 
uh, this is exactly the sort of thing that, that that's going to have to be fought against. Um, you know, we've got our work cut out for us in the years to come. There's no doubt about it. This is this is what the fight. This is one of the many things that the fight is going to be about. Yeah. So let me move on and ask you this. Mm-hmm. Something that I obviously have my opinion on. What do you take of the Trump Stormy Daniels hush money case? Not just not just as it relates to the district attorney, but also to your old office, the New York Attorney General's office. Do you think that this will be the case that, for lack of a better term or a pun, brings him to his knees, you know, so to speak? Right. Or do you have another favorite case? Well, that's a great question. Um I look, I, I think that we are, you know, if I'm going to I can use another uh, pun or analogy or something, you know, the, the the jury is literally still out on whether or not we're going to at least the grand jury is literally still out on whether or not we're really going to see anything happen with this. Uh, you know, so it's, you know, uh, as I'm sure your listeners know, it's uh, it's there's a grand jury open here in Manhattan now uh, with the Manhattan DA's office. Uh, I don't foresee the New York, uh, New York State Attorney General's office getting involved in it. Uh, their involvement in criminal matters is very, very limited, given that the Manhattan uh, that's usually handled at the county level in New York uh, and in most states. Uh, now that the Manhattan uh, DA's office is uh, is, is actually, uh, you know, looking into that, investigating that, I don't the, the, the state attorney general's office probably won't do anything uh, just because it's not really their beat. Um now, will it actually result in 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 real consequences? Yeah, I got my I have my doubts. I, I got to be honest. I think that uh, unfortunately we're now in a place where I'm going to have to. I'll believe it when I see it. With regard to the Manhattan DA's office, uh, that office's willingness to really go after Donald Trump, given that a year ago they had an investigation that was already very far along into fraudulent. Uh, misvaluations uh, of Trump's properties, and they dropped it. And the top two prosecutors left, as we all know. Uh, after that whole debacle a year ago, I'm gonna, you know, with 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 uh, with the Manhattan DA Alvin Bragg, I'm gonna believe it when I see it. Um, I'm I look. It's it's better than there not being a grand jury. Great, but uh, whether or not that grand jury is actually going to return any indictments, and whether they're going to indict. Trump, as opposed to indicting somebody else, you know, again, I'll believe it when I see it. I have higher hopes uh, for uh, for the for the federal cases into the Mar-a-Lago documents and into January 6th. We haven't seen and, you know, a lot of this is being done in D.C. right now. A lot of it's being done. There's court battles happening that are uh, behind closed doors and the documents are all under seal. Uh, so we really don't know what's going on there yet, but there are at least three federal grand juries sitting in D.C. right now that have been hearing evidence into those two cases. Um, and, you know, they've already now gone after and gotten convictions for cooperation from a lot of other people in the in the in the January 6th uh, conspiracy, uh, for example. So, I, I, you know, I think that is a lot farther along than anybody realizes. Nobody's talking about it right now. It hasn't been in the news hardly at all. Uh, but I believe that there are things going on there. I think there are things going on with the Mar-a-Lago documents as well. And then I think that we are potentially about to the right now, if I had to pick where the first indictment's going to come from, I actually think it might come from Fulton County, Georgia uh, in Atlanta, 
Uh, I think that case regarding the Atlanta 2020, the Georgia 2020 election results, uh, that uh, grand jury, well, what they're going to have to do out of that is they've got to then come up with some charging decisions. I think then they've got to impanel a second grand jury, uh, if I'm not mistaken, mm-hmm. to then do the indictments. But all of the investigatory work and the presentment to the special grand jury will have already been accomplished. Uh so they are they are they are they are quite far along with that matter now. Um, and I do think that and that could actually pull in Trump as well as there are other people that look like they are probably targets of that investigation, such as Rudy Giuliani and Lindsey Graham. Uh, I think that that matter had been had looked like it was kind of going very slowly for a long time. The word lately has been that it's picked up speed considerably. Uh, and of course, a number of those people were forced to come in and testify, including Graham, uh, in the last few months. Uh, a lot of that was held up by various court battles. So, you know, I, I would say that all three of those things, the, uh, the Fulton County, Mar-a-Lago and the Jan 6 are all probably further along uh, in their progress than the Manhattan DA's offices uh, with they're reopening into Stormy Daniels as well as they're clearly looking at other hush money uh, situations. Uh, and then they have supposedly also reopened looking into um, the, the fraud and the valuations of the buildings, which, again, there were literally situations in which the disparity between what he claimed as the taxable value of the property and then what he told lenders it was worth were different by 3,300%, not 30%, yeah. 3,300%, 33 times the value. So we're not talking about a, we just kind of fudged it a little bit to make the books look a little bit better. No, 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 no. This was just out and out criminal fraud. And I don't know how you can't say that that's just obvious evidence of, of criminal intent pretty much per se. Like it speaks for itself when you have a 33X disparity there. I don't, the, the New York Attorney General's office has been bringing the civil uh, suit of regarding that, and that's the one that we all know about, the $250 million. It's going to trial later this year. But that case should be brought as a criminal matter, and the fact that it hasn't been yet is insane to me. Uh, but all of that, Manhattan DA's office, by dropping their investigation a year ago, they went to the back of the pack, and now they're way, way behind a lot of these other uh, offices in terms of their progress in investigating all of this misconduct. Um, so I guess except, we'll see. Except, Tristan, to be, except to be fair, yeah. all of the work product that was done by Mark Pomerantz and Carrie Dunn, the two yep. New York DAs that resigned in protest, all of those, all of that documentation, all of the interviews, all of the notes that were taken still oh, it's exist. There. It's there. And so... Is you know you can actually so called build the car very very quickly you get can, it you up and running certainly a lot faster yeah. than some of the others That's like true. I don't have faith in January sixth yeah. I I truly don't yeah. um, it bothers me the fact that after a thousand interviews millions of documents there's no charging documents so far and the problem that you have in my opinion with the Georgia case with Fannie Willis is this all hinges on mens rea what will Donald Trump say about his mindset what can the information prove about his mindset the guy is a sociopath 
And so every time he opened his mouth, what did he say? They stole it from me. They stole, you know, 17,861 votes from me. He'll lie again, which he does all the time and with impunity. And he will just make the statement that, hey, look, that's not what I meant. That's not what I meant. I don't care what you people think. I know I won in Georgia. So I was just telling Brad Raffensperger, go find me what was stolen from me. And there's nothing illegal about that. Now, of course, we all know the truth. But to get the truth out of Donald Trump is virtually impossible. So I do have a lot of, I have a lot. And regardless of what everybody else says Mm -hmm. around him, that doesn't matter, right? He will still lie on the stand in order to protect himself. So you really do have to go with a case that's predicated on documentary evidence. You know, like last night I was watching, uh, I say the other night I was watching on 60 Minutes. um, Bill Whitaker, I think, is the guy who was... um, doing the interview with Mark Pomerantz. And he brought up, obviously, my name into it. And he turned around and he goes, well, I think one of the problems that the DA felt he had was Michael Cohen, who was a convicted perjurer. And the problem that I have with that type of stupid reporting, and I feel sorry for 60 Minutes, this sort of bullshit reporting never would have taken place into the old regime. But the problem with that is you have to also take a look and ask yourself, what was my perjury? First of all, I wasn't convicted. I pled guilty to a one-page information because they threatened, if I didn't, from a Friday to a Monday. And you probably know the story. I say it all the time, that they were filing an 80-page indictment that would include my wife. And anybody that has had any connection to any system where you are, as I was, backed up against the wall— you realize how powerless that you are. And I was not going to put my wife in that, in that situation. And you would know this as an attorney general. You know, when you bring somebody in as a potential defendant, all the power sits in your hands. So my statement really to this guy, Bill Whitaker, if assuming that that's the right guy that I have on it, I think he's fundamentally flawed in his thinking. I think he's only perpetuating the lies that were put out by the... Um, right, the the right media, the right wing media, whether it's the Fox News's or the OAN Newsmax, yeah. the Republican sentiment. Because again, you have to look to see what did I perjure myself on. And to those people that don't recall, and I say it all the time, I lied to Congress about the number of times that I spoke to Donald about a failed real estate project, the Trump Tower Moscow project. I said three. The truth is 10. And the reason I said 10 is because that's what they wanted me to say. They wanted me to stay on message. So if that makes me into a perjurer, like I would say to Bill, fuck you, right? Let me go through your cell phone, my friend. Let me go through your life and let me find the multitude of lies that you probably have spewed over the course of your lifetime, including probably on this show. But I'm going to leave him alone, you know, for now. But I do want to ask you on the same on the same vein, right? But a different question. You think Donald even makes it to the primaries? Because again, I have my opinions, but I I really want to hear what you have to think. Uh, so here's what I think on that, Michael. Is I think he's not only going to uh, look. Let's put aside his health 
Because I think that's the big wild card. I think I think let's assume that his that it, that his health stays where where it is. If if he if if he is healthy enough to to run, not only is he running, not only does he make it to the primaries. I think that he is the Republican nominee next year. I think he will. I think he will win the primaries. Uh, it, and I think that if it is Ron DeSantis who becomes his primary challenger. I think that Trump will. Uh, I think I think DeSantis will get some shots in. DeSantis will win some states, but I think that Trump will ultimately uh, beat him soundly. I I, ult- I actually don't know if it's really even going to be that close. Maybe it gets dragged out a bit because there's enough states where they split the delegates coming out of the different states. Maybe it uh, you know maybe DeSantis shows some strength in in, in certain parts of the country, get some delegates. It stretches out the process a bit. Uh, but I actually think that it's going to be Trump next year for the you Republicans. Do. Yeah, And then and then a Trump-Biden, too. I mean, you can't make this thing up. It's, you know, look, yeah. you know, I saw that there was a poll that was out there where like 80% of the country does not want to see right. a Biden-Trump, too, right. event. They just don't want, they want to see new blood there. And it's funny because if you look to see how successful Joe Biden has been over the first two years Mm -hmm. of his presidency, and then you compare that to his standing, to the poll numbers Mm -hmm. of his favorabilities, they just don't comport. And I think the biggest problem that Joe Biden has is his age. The fact that he looks old and he looks tired. And for some reason, when we see as Americans, because we're visual people, when we see like the Zelenskys of the world, a young guy who's out there fighting a much bigger foe, meaning Russia, I think that's what we're really looking for. I think we're looking for some younger blood, despite the fact he's doing a relatively good job. Yeah, I, that, that that may be true. I think that that you might be on to something there. You know, I think part of it is also though, that there's, there is such a big chunk of the country that like, he literally could just be, you know, just handing out like, you know, chocolate bars and, and, and pots of gold to every family in America. And he, and he, and he still would not be able to beat about 54% favorable because the other 46% of the country or whatever would just be like, never, ever going to support him. Even if he was but why? the best leader Just ever, why? Because because the degree why? of the degree of polarization is just so strong, and especially the the sort of like hardcore of like the Trump supporters and the Let's Go Brandon types, like they are so adamantly anti Biden, and they've managed to like carry along even some folks who would otherwise be much more sane members of the GOP with them. Like there's there there's a you know. There's that part of the of the right that just would never, ever support him. Uh, and I think that also here, here's another thing that I think is really a big part of the problem is that the mainstream media out of fear of looking liberal. They trash Joe Biden at pretty much every opportunity they can get. Uh, the latest round of it has been making all making a mountain out of the tiniest molehill with regard to the like. 10 documents that they were able to find among his personal effects, 
Mind you, they did the same thing to Mike Pence, and you know somehow that didn't manage to merit the same level of, of press coverage. But uh, but okay, but basically they go out of their way to find any little thing that Biden especially, but that any Democrat does, so that they can try to look like they're being objective. But it's really really difficult to pull this off when you've got one side is committing massive amounts of fraud and tried to overthrow the government, and the other side lost a few documents or you know did something i don't even look, know what it, 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 so, so, I'm, so that's part, that that's look, part i of the i don't too, i i think right i don't i don't tristan i don't ascribe to that my yeah. feeling is i don't understand why anybody walks out of washington out of the white house with any classified documents i don't want to hear this yeah. bullshit about oh it's not it was a mistake it was in the wrong file and so on okay one document i'll I'll even eat the way I truly feel about it. My thought is, you don't even need to ever take a top-secret document today. I'm talking about in 2023. You don't need to have documents on paper that are classified. Put it on a tablet. And if that tablet somehow manages to cross the front doorstep of the White House... It automatically deletes. The whole system shuts off. I don't understand this bullshit. It seems like it's like a fucking free-for-all. Where is NARA? Where are these fucking assholes that are supposed to be ensuring that all of these documents are kept? Because each and every one, like with us in law, you beta stamp your documents. They're all beta stamped. They knew they were missing. And where have they been over the course of the last 8, 10, 12 years or whoever else has docs? The, the system is broken. It really like and, and, and any and anybody, everything any, any, anybody who's ever worked at any level of government can tell you that the document keeping and IT is woefully like behind. It's just it's 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 pretty bad. Uh, that we really need to make an investment in infrastructure within the government to fix these problems because you're right. Like if this were if this were any other organization, you wouldn't have this stuff in paper anyway, right? Why is it in paper? Right. Uh, you know, yeah, you can have better information controls if you if you digitize this stuff. But yeah, you're totally right on that on that front. Um, but that is so the fact. Yeah, so Tristan, so the fact that Joe, so the fact that Joe Biden had these documents, I think that that creates a, a it, it creates an ability for Donald. To sort of escape. That was the no, point I was no, making on to. Oh, well, you're right. going to hold Donald responsible, but not Joe. Because the fact that you have them, if you had them, Tristan, I guarantee you, you'd be in prison. Just like reality winner was. Just like right. they tried to destroy, who was it, uh, Petraeus, uh, over the same, over one document. It makes no difference. If it was you, me, any of my listeners, if it was anyone else other than the, we'll call them the powerful, all right? They would be in prison. They'd be calling you for legal help. Right. But, you know, let me move on for a second because yep. I want to go back to my favorite topic over here as well. And that's George, the, George Santos or whatever he wants to call himself yeah. today. <laughs> because, again, like I asked before, I mean, you know, you, you've gone after George Santos. And I find it in, in a hilarious, hilarious way. And people seem to love your take on the guy because all of your videos featuring Santos get hundreds of thousands of views. Yeah. I mean, you got to be proud of yourself for that. Now, people like myself, I'm fascinated by him. First of all, he's like this schlub of a human being. It would have taken 
No, it would have taken nothing to figure out that the guy was lying. I mean, first of all, had he told me something as stupid as the fact that he played volleyball, not with that figure, my friend, for Baruch College, all right, which I highly doubt. And all you have to do is go look it up in the yearbook and you see that 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 fat ass is not on the team. Right. I would love to see I would love to see that. But more importantly than that, the easiest giveaway was when he said that Baruch destroyed Yale and Harvard in several matches that he was key in. And here's the thing. They're in totally different conferences. Yeah. I don't so it makes no college. sense at all. Yeah. Yeah, so then my yeah. so my so here's my question to you. Would you agree, Tristan, would you agree that Santos sits at the intersection between politics and true crime? Because I guess that's true for Donald as well, right? Yeah. They're both remorseless, but it's is it the boldness of their criminality that makes them so watchable? What is it? That's a that's a great point. Um I think it is. I think that they're just they're so pathological with it that that it and unfortunately yeah you can't you kind of it, it's this dumpster fire that we just can't stop watching right and uh and again like i said before though we the the comedy value of santos though risks us overlooking how serious of a situation that is uh, but the comedy value is still obviously there but yeah you, you you've got these folks that you know the, the this sort of this this really effed up like modern day grifter culture that that we've developed uh that is also really infected public life in a way that i don't think had been true for a couple of generations um not to say that there wasn't corruption in government uh this whole time there's always going to be some uh but but the brazenness with which these people are doing it is is something that we haven't seen in american politics for for you know a, a solid 60 80 100 years uh and Santos is very emblematic of that. Uh, Trump is very emblematic of that. If you look at other folks that are not necessarily running for office, but are kind of you know public life adjacent folks like Alex Jones or uh, Steve Bannon, uh, with the with the grifts that they've been doing. Alex Jones, it's with these you know he basically runs around telling everybody that uh, you know that their manhood is under attack and that he sells you these bogus testosterone supplements like that's how he makes a lot of money from his from his followers uh with bannon he's now getting convicted hopefully uh, he's been indicted and is being tried for the whole build the wall uh scam where they took people's money and then they turned around mm -hmm. and just pocketed the money uh, you know these scams are just getting uh, increasingly shameless and brazen uh and that's not even with going into the stuff for trump but back to santos um yeah, look, he he ran around, you know, one of the latest ones was he told his potential donors that he had been part of the Spider-Man musical. He'd been one of the producers for the Spider-Man musical on Broadway. No, also, he was Spider-Man. Oh, he, oh, he, oh, he was that's what it was. It's, it's the story. Yes, it's, it's the story it's of him. his life. When Yes, when he was at Horace Mann. In science class, he got bitten by he a spider. Bit. Yes. yes. And it gave and that's, him really good and volleyball it was, abilities, too. That's how he got to play Not volleyball. just volleyball abilities. It was the, it was the intense um, you know, intelligence that uh, came and the perceptiveness, which is, of course, how he ended up at Baruch. But <laughs> it was <laughs> that spider sense that gave him the ability to manage a $1.5 billion ah, hedge fund. Too. 
Yes. After working for Goldman and City and everybody else with returns of somewhere between 12 to 26%. Now, that in and of itself also should have been the telltale. First of all, nobody on Wall Street will ever give you a a uh, spread of yeah, we've made between right. 12 to 26%, you know, yeah. over the course of a year. It's no. it just doesn't really work that way. Yeah, but no, that, yeah. But those there's, just some of the so lies. But the kicker that you that you that that I think that you're that you're getting at here is that how did nobody find out all of this stuff until now? Now there's feeding frenzy and all these reporters are jumping in. He's getting investigated by all these governmental authorities. But just everybody was asleep at the switch. Part of it was that, unfortunately, um, you know, I think there was a, uh, a lack of attention and funding paid to some of the Democratic campaigns on Long Island in particular this past cycle. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, when I talked to my friends out there, that are in politics, they were uh, not happy with the lack of attention and lack of uh, lack of resources that were available. But a lot of it was just prioritization. They just made a mistake in not doing oppo research on Santos. They figured that because Santos had been the candidate for the Republicans in 2020 for one of the seats out there, that there wasn't going to be anything new. So why run another opposition research? I'm going to uh, give you the answer to that. Can I give you? Yeah, go ahead. Tristan, let me give you two words. Two words. Yeah incompetence and laziness that's the answer they could try to shift it off to anything else in the world it's incompetence and it's laziness because you didn't have to spend one dollar not one dollar in order to have disproven that and one would have you didn't need to hire uh you know look getting a getting a full-blown oppo research thing or they call it a vulnerabilities assessment uh you know that tends to cost like 30 40 50 grand uh, sometimes more. You could have had a couple of interns look up some of this stuff and debunk a, a lot of these things. Like it wouldn't have been that difficult to do. Uh, and you know, so yeah, they didn't just do some basic stuff that you could have actually done with folks that are any campaign worth its salt has at least some college kids or whatever that are that are hanging out doing some doing some unpaid internship stuff just to get something on their resume yeah. you know you could have you could i used to do that stuff when i was a kid like you could have you could have stuck some but you could have stuck a couple of those uh college kids on that they probably would have had this figured out in about an hour or two let me move on yeah. then and ask you this jim jordan is gearing up for his new role right as a big time house prosecutor mm-hmm. How successful do you think his campaigns are going to be? Because when he gets the facts on the weaponization of the government, don't you think that it could blow up in his face? Unless you're really twisting the truth. The GOP are the folks who weaponize the government and Donald Trump. In fact, through my lawyer, we actually sent a letter. My buddy Jeff Levine, the lawyer, was with me when I was down over at um, Pearl Street, when they unconstitutionally remanded me, we sent off a letter to not just Jim Jordan, but every member, Republican and Democrat, saying, hey, look, I hope that this is a legitimate, and I really do, I want to actually not attack Jim Jordan for the first time and say, I do truly hope that this that this committee or subcommittee is going to be bipartisan and it's going to be legitimate And it's going to get to the bottom of all of the bullshit that's going on at DOJ and the weaponization. And the first thing that we ask them to look at 
is the most grossest weaponization of the Justice Department, hence the title of my book, Revenge, how Donald Trump weaponized the United States Department of Justice against his critics. All right. Take a look at that one and add it to your list. And it should actually be the first. What's your thought? I think you're on to something there in that, you know, look, really what we saw, and it goes back to what we were talking about before with kind of the, you know, the the attempted oligarchization of the American government and economy under Trump. You know, you, you can go a lot of different ways with this. You can go at DOJ, but you can also go look and see what's been done at the postal uh, at the post office in the last like five years. Uh, with 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 Trump's uh, appointed postmaster general, Louis DeJoy. You could also look at what happened uh, at the National Weather Service, uh, where they actually uh, a Trump donor who had been the guy, I can't remember his name right now, who had been the uh, who had been the head of AccuWeather, which is the uh, private sector competitor of the National Weather Service, uh, which, by the way, is actually the source of most of your private weather data actually comes from the National Weather Service. National Weather Service barely charges anything for it, if anything at all. Uh, they basically just give away all this wonderful, valuable data for free. Uh, and then other companies uh, then turn around and, and use it to, to turn a profit. Uh, but it was, there was an attempt to try to stop the National Weather Service from doing the wonderful work that it does to actually uh, provide weather predictions that save millions, that save thousands of lives and millions and billions of dollars uh, every year. Uh, from people uh, for for just to take one major example for being able to get out of harm's way when there's a big tornado or hurricane, for example. Uh, but uh, there's a lot of places where the government's been weaponized. Uh, I think that it's safe to say that most of that happened under the Trump administration. Uh, but if they're going to be even-handed about it, they should look. They they should look at everything. Now, do I think they will? I don't think so. I think that this is obviously going to just be a, a hyper-partisan witch hunt that they're going to use to try to see if they can get back at Democrats uh, for the Jan 6 investigation and other investigations. Uh, you know, put it this way, there's a, there's a solidly documented history of, of Jim Jordan in particular turning a blind eye to wrongdoing when it was right under his nose. Uh, based on the reports of what happened at Ohio State uh, when when he was the one of the coaches of the wrestling team, you can everybody a lot of people know about this. And if uh, if you don't, you should go look it up. But be prepared for uh, to have your stomach turned because it's absolutely revolting what happened there. Uh, but uh, I, I think he's more than capable of of really pathologically turning a blind eye to wrongdoing that doesn't fit his narrative and just ignoring it. I don't have high hopes that we're going to see justice or, or accountability come out of that committee. I just think it's going to be very difficult for them to try to push on to some new narrative of weaponization before which you look at the one that's it's right in there. everybody's face. And I will just yeah. look and I would, by the way, the person that you're thinking of was Barry Myers, the former CEO of the AccuWeather that they brought on to Trump's uh, team yeah. and so on, which caused donor, all sorts of bullshit. He was a, big donor to Trump he was a huge. Yeah, but uh, the, the that he was uh, Michael Lewis's book, The Fifth Risk, is 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 the book that that told me about that whole story, and I, I highly recommend that to anyone who wants to talk about. It, it, if you look beyond, there's the DOJ stuff, which obviously Michael, you've covered extensively, uh, and then 
for beyond DOJ in terms of the weaponization or demolition of the government during the Trump years, uh, that book, Fifth Risk, really chronicles it in, uh, in really scary detail uh, on some agencies that you might not know anything about, but uh, you'll realize are very, very important to our daily life. They provide a lot of value that we may not realize. And there is a concerted effort to tear them apart from, from 2017 to 2020. Yeah, not not too good. So look, Tristan, as I say on every show, <laughs> the hour goes by very quickly. So I have a dish, one last question yep. for you. I mean, I could actually ask you questions all afternoon. Got to go to my next favorite topic here. That pathetic, slovenly slob Bill Barr was just on Bill Maher the other night, and I watched it. And I got to say, it was disappointing. And it was disappointing because I felt that Bill Maher was just chugging out like these very softball types of questions. It was a softball interview. Yeah. But why do you think that people like Bill Maher still give Bill Barr the benefit of the doubt? I mean, perhaps they think that Barr and maybe even like a John um, Durham were justified in their attempts to protect the president. Is Barr, I mean, because Barr is still out there and he's making appearances on national TV like he's guilty of nothing, when in fact, he was, he was Goebbels to like Hitler. He was, he was, you know, he was his henchman. I mean, that's exactly what he was when he did what he knew was in, inappropriate. It was against his ethical codes. He went ahead, he weaponized the Justice Department, and now he's running around trying to say, well, I told Donald that you lost the election. And so that's supposed to invite him back into, you know, into polite society, that he has a space here before he has come forward, not with one single honest thing that he did for Donald, with Donald, at Donald's direction, not one thing. And Bill Maher had an opportunity to get that out of him. Yeah, look, I think that there's, look, I mean, Bill, Bill Maher has been around a long time, and I think Bill Maher cares mostly about Bill Maher. And, you know, I think that you, you get, uh, you know, look, I don't, you know, Bill Maher's got a show. He's not like trying to get into like the West Wing and get people to give him quotes, but it's still at the end of the day, there too much of the media establishment has just completely gone in the tank for what amounts to access journalism. And I think that a guy like Bill Maher is sitting there thinking, he's not even thinking it, it's just instinct at this point, that they're never going to go too hard on virtually anybody uh, because, they're, uh, because they want to make sure that other you know, uh, elites feel comfortable going on his show. Right. If he if he gets a reputation for being too tough, but this is what's happened to all of these shows. You know, you, you rarely get any tough questions asked on any of the Sunday shows, uh, not for a long, long time, because they stopped caring about about asking incisive questions that really cut to the cut to the core of something. And they care more about whether or not big wigs are willing to come on the show. And they, they I think and all these guys worry way too much about, well, if we ask too many tough questions, these people won't want to come on our show anymore. Uh, and it's a really crappy dynamic because, uh, you know what, it's one thing if a, if somebody runs a more of a comedy show or something like that, you know, the whole thing where um, Jimmy Fallon like tousled Trump's hair, and everybody made a big deal out of it. You know, I didn't think that was the right thing for Fallon to do. But at the same time, Fallon's not supposed to be there as a journalist. Fallon's supposed to be there to have a good time. 
Um, Bill Maher is supposed to be asking some questions. I don't know if I would call Bill Maher a journalist, but he's supposed to be something more than a comedian. And, you know, and, and he didn't really pull it off there. He's, he's more concerned about whether or not other people like Bill Barr feel comfortable going on his, going on his show. So he's going to give these people a free pass. Unfortunately, that's what too much of the media has become. And it's why shows like this do very, very well. Like the, the rise in new media is because the old media folks are not necessarily getting the job done. I'm not saying everybody, but too many of them are just giving elites and VIPs and bigwigs a free pass. Bill Barr shouldn't be treated like he's, you know, freaking Angelina Jolie or some other celebrity going on a, on a show. You know, it, it, this is not a puff piece so that Bill Barr can tout some new project he's doing. You know, the, the, right. the celebrity culture where you treat the VIPs with kid gloves has kind of infected the news culture and made it and, and just defanged it. And as a result, we don't actually ask tough questions of these leaders and 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 politicians and and uh, and and public figures anymore. And it's a big problem because it means that they're getting away with everything. So yeah, I'm yeah. not surprised. I'm not surprised. Sadly, well, there was the though there was a journal, and I'm blanking. I'm thinking maybe it was Chuck Todd on Meet the Nation or something like that, where he had. Um, someone on and they were spewing a bunch of lies and bullshit and he was like no nah, we have to stop right there because I just have to I, is this what you're saying and it was ex it was absolutely a lie and, and it may have been George, your favorite George Santos they, 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 they do their I'm not saying they never do their job I'm just saying that it's gotten more and more and more rare that you see put it this way yes these days now if one of the Sunday shows actually does hold someone to account on the show and actually like points mm -hmm. out that they were just lying or that what they were saying has no basis in fact it becomes news it's actually news right. that the news show did its job that's how rare right. it is because most of the time <laughs> they don't bother this happened uh, the other yeah. day i think it was yesterday uh one of the sh some show managed to actually point out on live tv to marco rubio that Trump had actually had three different Chinese spy balloons go over saw the that. U.S. airspace. And and the face that Rubio made on live TV, and then he was just abruptly like, oh, thank you, like, you know, getting off the air as fast as he could uh, was, was, was hilarious. But the reason that that went around, again, why did that clip go viral? Because it was so unusual. It never happens anymore. <laughs> right. So... Well, you know, Tristan, let me thank you again for your time. Let me thank you for your perspective. Um, stay with it. Keep doing what you're doing. I find it hilarious. I find it not just informative, but entertaining at the same time. Um, so just we will see who's right about some of our predictions. Yep. I'm going to have you come back and we're going to talk about it a whole lot more because none of this bullshit is stopping anytime soon. That's true. Thank you, Michael. Take care. Thank you, my friend. Be well. Bye -bye. And now for today's mea culpa. Republicans since the beginning of time have been talking about taking away our Social Security and Medicare. I mean, remember Paul Ryan, former House Speaker and make-believe math genius? All he ever talked about was cutting social spending, which is weird for a guy who was raised on food stamps and Social Security because his alcoholic father died when he was young, leaving the family with nothing. 
Honestly, it's probably Ryan's own self-hatred and resentment that makes him want to cut the social programs that saved him during tough times. Now, I'm not a shrink, but naturally, we all want to disassociate from things that give us shame. This is probably why Republicans are so adverse to admitting that they are coming for the benefits that you've earned by calling them entitlements. Why? Because they think it's shameful and cruel. I ask myself, why do Americans, mostly Republicans, take issue with things that make the lives of middle and lower income people easier? Like forgiving a few thousand of a kid's college loans. And then I remember, the problem is greed. Part of why we know Republicans are back on the social security warpath is because they keep talking about it and then dodging the issue. The debate has already gotten ugly. It's also going to test voters' ability to separate fact from fiction because from the look of it, Republicans aren't going to cop to the robbery until it's already happened. And if their voters never see it coming, all the better. I mean, egg-headed twit Rick fucking Scott has committed what some are calling an unforced error when over the summer he put out a lengthy memo, I mean like a 10-point plan meant to be a roadmap for the Republicans going forward. Now I want to remind people, it was also Scott's way of announcing that he has his eye on the 2024 nomination. Well good luck asshole, you ain't gonna get it. Anyway, Mitch McConnell tried to shut that 10-point plan upon its arrival, especially because Rick Scott's memo admitted outright, in un- I mean literally in words on paper, that the way Republicans can shore up the national debt is to tax the middle class. Now, not the rich. I mean, oh God, no, not the rich. The middle class, we can tax them to death. Hey, great fucking idea, Rick, but don't tell anyone. So now, they are pretending Rick Scott's memo never happened, that it doesn't exist. And MAGA lawmakers, I mean it hurts to say those two words, MAGA and lawmakers, together, are holding our economy hostage by using the debt crisis as cover. Cut spending, they say, after they spent all the money. These politicians know that it would be political suicide to go out there and flat out say, I want to cut and ultimately dismantle Social Security. Voters, regardless of party, would go fucking nuts and probably not vote for any of them. Unless they too are MAGA to know what's too good for them. I mean, either way, Democrats need to keep pushing the point and keep needling them. It's working. So let's yell from the rooftops. They're coming for our Social Security and our Medicare. Why? Because Republicans are going to lie and eventually voters are going to figure it out. Rick Scott is guilty of historic Medicare fraud. I mean, his former hospital company was slapped with a $1.7 billion fine thanks to Scott. I mean, it's a fascinating story and I don't really want to talk about it, but I will tell you to look it up. But the moral of that story is he's a greedy fucking liar. Period. End of story. Ashamed to tell the truth so that we here on Maya Culpa have to do it for him. And as always, thanks for listening. Maya Culpa is brought to you by Audio Up, Midas Touch, and LSJ Media. Written by Jimmy Jelinek and Paula Killen. Our editor and managing producer is Lisa Orkin. Our executive producers are Jared Gustat, Jimmy Jelinek, and myself, Michael Cohen, along with Phil Alberstadt. It may be a new day politically, but nowadays the landscape is more confusing than ever. 
Donald Trump may have lost the battle for the presidency, but in many ways, Trumpism is still winning the war on the state and local level. Maya Culpa is here to help guide you through the wilderness and keep you informed. And let's face it, we all want Trump, Rudy, and the rest of these seditious traitors to see justice. And folks, I promise you, it's coming. So stay tuned as I guide you through the twists and turns of the criminal process that will ultimately see them behind bars. Maya Culpa, nothing but the truth. Thank <laughs> you.